The small white bus jostled its way through the towering columns of buildings, heading east to the one part of town that the driver was certain this little bus had never visited before. Bright reflective glass was soon replaced by graffiti-covered plywood, and pristine sidewalks with a crumbling urban landscape further marred by the scent of despair. Into this jarring scene, the pristine little white bus sailed with its deep blue emblazoned lettering, announcing it to be the property of the Governor's School for the Arts at Walnut Grove. Its destination, Building 14, South Kettle Lane. Pulling up at last to the half circle at the front of the towering public apartment building, the little white bus was greeted by a trio of women, or at least one woman, presumably her two daughters. The slightly taller of the two young girls was beaming and did a little hop when the driver pulled the crank on the bus door and leaned out toward them with a quizzical look on his round, bearded face. Cassandra? Cassandra Cole? The driver intoned, looking mainly at the pretty young girl who stood next to a shabby-looking suitcase, clutching a dark portfolio with one hand and her younger sister's hand with the other. Yeah, that's me. The girl beamed, releasing her hold on the younger girl, whose face soured immediately. But there was no stopping the excitement in her voice and carriage as she bobbed up to the driver and presented him with a neatly folded sheet of paper. The girl had deep green eyes and light ginger hair that tumbled loosely about her shoulders, whisking about in the brisk breeze. She had a bright smile and a winsome dimple on one cheek as she clutched a black portfolio under one arm and gazed at the driver expectantly. Dutifully, the driver took the sheet of paper and checked it against the clipboard he had carried with him from the bus. Indeed it is! A pleasure to meet you, Miss Cole. My name is Bentley. Yes, like the car. No, I've never owned one, but there are certainly plenty of them to be seen at the school. The older man smiled as he offered a hand to Cassie, who took it and returned a firm shake before twirling around toward her sister, whose frown had only grown deeper. Now, Charlie, you and I have a deal. I'll be back for Christmas, which isn't that long from now, and you are going to make new friends and help Aunt Nani. Cassie delivered this with the sternness only a loving sister can muster, including the hands-on-hips pose that seemed to come with the job of elder sister. You can't just leave me! Charlie's little head drooped, but Cassie was having none of it as she wrapped her up in a hug that lifted her little sister from the ground, <laughs> swinging her around until Charlie was laughing and squealing to be let go. I presume that you must be Joan Williard Stewart, the, the child's... Um... Yes, I'm Joan. These are my sister's girls, but the adoption has finally gone through. She smiled in saying this, and her smile lit her whole face. Well, congratulations then. I suppose I'll get things loaded up and we'll be on our way, replied the driver with a courteous nod toward Joan before taking the suitcase in one large hand and carrying it to the back of the bus where he busied himself depositing it in the back compartment. While the driver loaded Cassie's lone suitcase into the back of the bus, Cassie gave Charlie one last spin before swinging her to the ground in front of her and dropping to a knee. Charlie, I know that this makes you sad, 
And I know you're sad because you love me. Cassie pulled Charlie into a tight embrace, whispering. I love you. Truly, I won't be gone that long. And Aunt Nani needs your help. Promise me you'll be helpful. Promise me. Charlie sniffed in a tear as she hugged her sister tight, burying her face in her sister's shoulder and nodding. Okay. With tears in both of their eyes, they turned toward Joan, who waved a hand in front of her own face and laughed while biting her lip. You're such a beautiful girl. Your mother would be so proud. Cassie straightened and walked swiftly up to her aunt, wrapping her in a tight farewell embrace. You are my mother, Noni, she whispered into Joan's blouse. Not wishing to be left out, Charlie completed the circle and all three women took a moment to laugh and cry together before breaking apart as Joan took Charlie's hand and smiled back at Cassie, who turned and made her way to the little white bus. You may have your choice of seats, my dear, offered Bentley as he leaned over to give the door mechanism a quick pull after Cassie had climbed aboard. And so the little white bus had picked up its precious cargo, and with a double honk, pulled out of the semicircle drive in front of the apartment towers and back toward its final destination at Walnut Grove. Noting after a quick inspection that the bus looked empty, Cassie selected the front seat opposite the driver and settled in, scooting to the window and waving furiously back at her aunt and sister as the bus pulled away. As the tower receded from view and graffiti was replaced with the pristine glass storefronts of the city, Cassie absently began humming a small tune. Ah, a musician then. I'm sorry, what did you say? The bus driver had remained so silent that Cassie had forgotten about it. You're humming there. Figured you must be a musician. Everyone's got a specialty at Walgroves. Bentley replied in a jovial tone as he turned the bus toward a large highway entry sign and began to pick up speed. Walgroves? Repeated Cassie, though she felt like a bit of a heel just repeating things. And her confusion this early on didn't bode well for what was to come. Sure, Walgrove or Walgroves, it's what everyone calls the school. You can't very well go around saying, the governor's school for the arts at Walnut Grove. It's quite a mouthful after all. So everyone just calls it Walgroves or Walgroves Academy if you like. I see. Not a very attractive name, but I suppose that makes sense. Cassie shrugged as she peered out the window toward the landscape that sped by. She'd heard that the school campus was enormous, situated on nearly 6,800 acres of grounds, but had no idea what that might look like, having grown up in the city. So music then, is it? Queried the driver once again. You'll like the music department, I think, though it may depend on if you are an instrumentalist or vocalist, I suppose. Oh, no, no, I'm not a musician at all, though I like to sing. I'm here for painting, sculpting, that sort of thing. Cassie replied as she fingered the black portfolio she had carried with her onto the bus. Of course, of course, I should have known. That must be your portfolio there with you. Well, you'll have to show me some of your work once you get settled in. I do love a good drawing or painting. Driver looked back briefly to smile at Cassie before turning his eyes back to the road. You said I'd enjoy the music department? Do you know anything about the visual arts program? 
Cassie was interested in learning anything and everything she could. Her interview process had included a number of faculty, but she had met none of the students and had only a cursory tour of the school. Oh, sure, they're a fine group. Pretty quiet. Usually keep to themselves. Bentley began to slow the vehicle down as he turned the small bus off of the expressway and down the exit ramp. The visual arts seem to be a bit of an individual thing, if you know what I mean. It's not a very large group. These days, everyone's into the digital arts. All the other programs have been struggling for new students. Cassie frowned at this. She appreciated his sentiment, but knew exactly what he was talking about. Painting, drawing, sculpting were all wonderful things that no one seemed to appreciate anymore. Most of her fellow students from high school had access to computers and tablets at home with an amazing array of tools that could render art that would take Cassie months to replicate with a brush. Trying to keep up was what had helped to push her skill far enough to gain the notice of the scholarship committee. But I'll take the good old-fashioned stroke of a brush any day. He smiled as he took a left under the overpass, heading back toward the city, which was little more than a silhouette along the skyline now. Don't you worry, young Cassie, assured the driver as he pulled the small white bus through an enormous wrought iron gate that framed the main entry into the school. Normal people like you and me don't need all the fancy trappings. Creativity, after all, comes from the heart, and if I can tell anything at all about a person, it's how big their heart is. This he said as he pulled the bus to a stop beneath a large stone portico that arched over the drive. The lights of the large stone building were lit as the day was beginning to fade, casting a cheery glow to the building's beautiful facade. After shifting the bus into park and setting the brake, the driver turned in his seat to face young Cassie. His dark eyes sparkled with sincerity as he finished the thought. Always follow your heart, Cassie, and don't let anyone take it from you. Yes, well, she's too much of a chatterbox for that, if you ask me retorted a voice from the back of the bus. Cassie gasped and turned quickly to see a slight young man who was just now sitting up from where he had apparently been reclining in the back seat. Don't let that one bother you. He's as frightened as you, but too proud to ask anyone for help, retorted Bentley as he reached for the door lever one last time and pulled it open. Everyone out then, it should be just about time for the evening meal, if you hurry. Hey, if you're not going to move, do you mind scooting in so I can get by? Remarked the young man, who had quickly slid to his feet and was now standing over Cassie, waiting for her to move. I'm sorry? Replied Cassie, still blinking in surprise and confusion as she slid back into her seat to let the young man pass. I'm sure you are. <laughs> All you mutters are the same. Half head in the clouds and the rest of you covered in some sort of paint. The young man slid past and out of the bus without another word, leaving Cassie gaping at his rudeness. That's Ludwig. He'll be with the Digital Arts Society. Most of them lack... people skills, I think. Explained the bus driver as he shook his head and exited the bus through his own door. Don't worry about your bags. They'll be taken up to your room and I can take the portfolio as well if you like. Bentley added while peering back at her through the driver's side door. No, that's okay. I'll just hang on to this for now. Cassie responded as she stood at last picking up her portfolio and stepping down and out of the bus. The scene that spread before her was even more beautiful than she remembered. The evening sky painted the tall glass of the front atrium in gorgeous shades of vermilion and sapphire. 
The main building was comprised of warm sandstone, rising two or three stories in height with dark slate tile along the roof and an entryway that was framed by a long covered archway featuring pillars of multi-hued river stones and a mosaic floor of the most intricate design. Well, you didn't think the school for the arts would be ugly, did you? Blurted the voice of the young man, who had not yet ventured into the building. You can call me Ludo if you like. It's far more preferable name to Ludwig. And my apologies for my rudeness back there. It turns out you're quite pretty, and it wouldn't hurt for people to see me walking in with you. His wry grin and sardonic tone hinted at his attempt at making a joke, but Cassie was having none of it. Hmm. From the looks of you, I don't think it would help me at all to be seen walking in with you. So, if my reputation is based on the company I keep, I suppose I'm better off heading in on my own. With a flip of her hair, Cassie left him standing flat-footed, striding down the open walkway and through the open doors, head held high. She couldn't help but smile at the sound of his hurried footsteps as he attempted to catch up with her before she reached the entryway, portfolio tucked neatly beneath her arm. Come, rest that I your wounds may bind. 
Would that you could spare me a mortal's fate, for eagerly I would come. But there, across the sea, my prize awaits. None but Lady Death awaits on mortis isle. Be still, be calm, and stay a while. Detain me not, fair Queen of Light. While comely thy visage be, yonder lies the prize for me. When the morning comes, your prize will be there still. Cut! Cut! That was ghastly! Dreadful! I want you to go through it again. This time make me feel something. Anything at all. The two of you look like you've forgotten absolutely everything you've learned over the last three seasons. Start from the top and try to at least make me feel something this time around. Belladonis lounged against the theater chair as he watched his senior performers move slowly back to their places for the start of the scene. Last year's season-ending show was brilliant, perhaps the best that had ever been performed in the school's long and awarded history. Adonis hated having to lose such an incredibly talented cohort, and while he held some hope for this year's crop of third and fourth year scholars, this muckety display suggested that he perhaps should retire early. Addy, Addy, if you push them too hard this early, you'll break them all. Come now, let the children enjoy the opening week before the thrashing begins. A voice of reason drifted down to Professor Adonis, who reluctantly rose to his feet and clapped his hands. Very well, very well. We're done for the evening. All right, everyone, you are free to go for now. Go look at the evening meal, but don't touch anything that isn't leafy and green. I'm not casting any chubby characters this year. Master Adonis sighed as he turned to greet his fellow master, and sometimes muse. Ah, oh, my dear Cressida, right as always. How did I ever think that these wriggling worms would magically metamorph on their own? I can't believe a new year is upon us so soon. They're merely seventeen, after all. Don't you remember what it was like to be seventeen? You'll have them in top shape in time. I believe in you, Addie. You always pull through. Mistress Cressida McLean, the professor of choreography, smiled demurely as she held out a gloved hand in expectation that Bale take it. Now I need you to come with me beyond prying eyes as something of greater importance has come to my attention involving the new crop of scholars that has just arrived. I can only assume they're all bow-legged, crooked, and raspy with interest only in computers. And let me guess, there are neither mutters nor scribblers this year, replied Adonis with a dismissive wave. Nevertheless, he took Cressida's hand and began to walk with her toward the back of the stately auditorium, which was dark save for the lights that illuminated the stage below. Addy, you know that you shouldn't be encouraging those biased terms. The visual arts may lack relevance in the digital world, but they are still exceedingly important for other things. Gressida looked cautiously about as the two professors walked hand in hand up the aisle to the doors in the back, pushing through them to the hallway beyond. Once he was certain that the professors had departed, Willem sagged and nodded to Janice, who too wore a look of abject rejection. You did well, Janice. We'll get this. Don't worry. He changes his mind constantly. How can I possibly master something that moves every time you look at it? Exasperated, Janice pulled a set of earpods from the pocket 
of her hoodie and turned to head backstage. As the other students departed eagerly for the aforementioned reception dinner, Willem remained, mulling over the night's events and the professor's sharp critique as he picked up a broom from offstage and began to clean the floor in slow, steady strokes. Having spent the entire last season and the summer memorizing lines and rehearsing scenes, it was far more than a letdown to feel as though he were starting everything from scratch. As he watched Janice disappear behind the curtain, he felt that all of his work had been for naught. He needed to earn the lead for this season's show. His father, William S. Marshall III, had demanded as much. The family reputation is at stake, son! Willem remembered his father shouting with a dramatic flair that only an actor of his father's caliber could muster on command, or in this case, at the dinner table. We haven't invested five years into your education for you to be playing supporting roles your entire life. If you can't land the lead in even a single play, how can you expect to be accepted into Ramald? The Ramald School of Performing Arts was easily the most prestigious university for traditional theater, and in Willem's father's mind, the path to glory. Nearly every actor of any note first passed through the winnowing Ramald mold before launching into the international celebrity that Willem's father so deeply craved for his son to attain. Walgrove was just a stepping stone, but Willem had to admit, if he couldn't succeed here, how did he expect to take the next step? Soaking in the emotion of the moment, Willem added this to his repertoire, internally recording the feeling in his gut, the strain in his arms and legs and the fixture of his countenance for a later moment. Willem continued to push the broom in short strokes across the stage floor, seeking out other emotions within which to bathe. He must succeed this year. I'll get the lead, Father. But I'll do it for me, not for you. Having walked alone backstage, Janice climbed atop one of the unfinished set pieces and adjusted the ear pods in her ears as she settled into a cross-legged sitting position. You're all hopeless, she mocked as she recalled Master Adonis's words. She knew well that success in this field required a thick skin and a short memory. Sometimes she wondered if she would ever have those in the right order. Janice Tremaine listened intently to a particularly challenging stretch of a flute solo. Janice didn't actually play the flute, as instruments were never her thing. Like most of the performing arts students, Janice was minoring in vocals and found the cascading trills and arpeggios that some instruments could attain very helpful in improving her own art. As a rising third year student, Janice was embracing the draft, which is to say, coming to the realization that being good at anything required an immense amount of dedication and arduous work. She'd had quite a bit of fun her first and second year, as most scholars did, exploring all that Walgrove had to offer, from curriculum to events and activities of every kind. Her overall class standing had not suffered too badly, for which she was thankful, but her in-focus standing was well below where she wished to be, having only secured a supporting character and a couple of minor solos in last season's Arts Festival, a festival that the school put on to highlight the talent it had accumulated within its ranks each year. 
it wasn't really the performance she was interested in, for she had happened upon something that was far more interesting, and she was certain that this flute solo was the key. Having committed the part to memory, Janice remained seated, but straightened her back and opened her chest. The platform situated her about 10 feet above the black floor below. Closing her eyes, she let her arms fall loosely to her side before rolling her shoulders back gently. So, let's see what we have here. Supposedly, all I have to do is just sing this phrase correctly. Here goes nothing. And then she began to sing the phrase. In reality, the phrase was a simple arpeggio. In practice, however, hitting the odd intervals in succession was no small feat. After a few runs through the lines, she opened her eyes. Nothing. With a small frown, Janice closed her eyes again, smoothing her breathing as she did, before beginning once again. This time, she started slowly and softly, the notes rising from her chest like a gentle breeze. She imagined herself seated in the ancient land from which the verses came. Over and over she sang the brief musical phrase, taking in each note and filling it with every fleeting emotion she could muster. Fear rolled past and was pushed into the arpeggio. Shame, too, along with self-loathing, but also hope and envy, along with a small spark of childish joy. She was like a careless scientist blasting her beaker of sound with bursts of random compounds in the faint hope of discovering a miracle cure. Exhausted at last, and utterly spent, Janice sagged, her breath coming in ragged gasps now. She lifted her hand to her head to tug the light ear pods from her ears and felt only air. Blinking open her eyes, Janice squealed in delight watching her breath float away like a misty cloud. I'm cold. It's cold. I can't believe I did it. She clapped her hands together and sprang to her feet, feeling in her pocket for the ever-present phone. She needed to tell Maxine immediately. But the pocket was empty. It was then that Janice noted the tufts of snow on the ground and soft, flittering flakes that were cascading through the air all around her. Fear began to overtake her joy. She had reached the other side. But now what? Hello? Hello? Is anyone there? Janice called into the darkness as she wrapped her arms about herself and shivered. Willem paused his sweeping as the voice began to rise from the backstage. Must be Janice. He murmured as he focused his attention on the lilting tones. It was beautiful, mysterious. There was so much pain, yet the simply repeated notes were not in themselves sorrowful. Quite frankly, it was some of the best singing he had heard, but not part of their normal repertoire for this season's show. Perhaps a senior project? He muttered as he resumed pushing the broom. But at last his interest was piqued, and unable to focus on his own task any longer, Willem walked lightly to the edge of the stage, setting the broom against the wall before beginning to navigate the series of overlapping curtains along the wings that led toward the back of the stage. 
The song was beginning to crescendo as the singer repeated the musical phrase over and over, each time with greater fervency, as if willing Willem to find her. Yet as he pushed the last curtain aside, the song came to a sudden and abrupt end, the voice ringing in the empty auditorium, followed by a clatter like the sound of someone dropping their phone. Willem scanned the open space backstage but saw no one. The floor was clear. The lighting and ballast ropes were neatly secured to their pegs along the back wall. Nothing seemed to be out of place, and there was no sign of the mysterious source of the voice. Janice? Willem offered tenuously. Uh, I'm sorry if I startled you. Please continue. Uh, I just... Well, I, I wanted to say that it was... It was really quite good. Receiving no reply, Willem walked across the blackened floor to the back wall, where he knew he would find the overhead light switches. With a click and a hum, the room brightened immediately under the dim fluorescence of the working lights. Once again, Willem scanned the room, holding his breath to listen for something, anything. Janice? But there was no one. There was nothing. Then his eye caught sight of something dangling from the top of one of the makeshift platforms. Janice? On further inspection, he recognized the looping wire belonged to a pair of ear pods, and as he climbed lightly to the top of the platform, he discovered a mobile phone lying face up, the screen unlocked and glowing. Janice? Cassie and the Spectral Shade is an original story written, scored, and narrated by Daniel Nichols and is produced by Good Hand Productions. This narrative-based audio presentation is the second story in the broader Chronicles of Eridal series, which can also be found in bound print and digital book format at major booksellers near you. All of our work at Good Hand Productions is made possible by our patrons, the support of our listening audience, and the tremendous voice talent of our many podcasting creators and friends. Cassie Cole is voiced by the amazing J.D. Rose from Goodham Productions. Sarah Dawson and Aunt Noni are voiced by Nikki Richardson from Top of the Round. Willem Marshall IV is voiced by Storm S. Cohn from Goodham Productions. Whittle Apple is voiced by Dietrich Marie Bowie. Headmistress Pearl Floquet is voiced by Rachel Finley from Goodham Productions. Ludo Van Ness is voiced by Adam LeGrave from The Tall Grass Podcast. Janice Tremaine is voiced by Beth Yadden. Bentley the Bus Driver and Master Grimpen Galleon are voiced by Brad Zimmerman from The Gigantic Adventures of Jeff and Simon and Fate of Bison Podcast. Jimmy and Bobby Franks are voiced by Kenneth Eccles from Podcast Reviews Reviews Podcast. Mistress Cressida McLean is voiced by Julie Miller from The Podville Podcast. Master Bale Adonis is voiced by Corbin Miller from The Podville Podcast. Mistress Cynthia Zeltrix is voiced by Haley Munoz from Good Hand Productions. Molly O'Dine is voiced by Susanna Lewis from The Thorndale Podcast. Trevor Dawson is voiced by Cody Miller from Good Hand Productions. Alastair Montrose and Willem Marshall III are voiced by Jordash Richardson from Top of the Round. 
Mistress Audrey Maud is voiced by Kate Walinga from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. Garrett Black and Harvey Kettle are voiced by Mike Atchley from Goodham Productions. Lanana is voiced by Brian Dallin from Goodham Productions. The Ningalix is voiced by Jolene Fresquez from Goodham Productions. The music, singing, foley, and sound effects are all original creations of our insanely talented cast and crew at Goodham Productions. To learn more, visit us online at goodhamproductions.com. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe, and if you love the show, we'd love to hear and read your reviews.